0: You're listening to a North Valley Church Podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. All right. Well, good morning, good morning. Shalom, y'all. I was going around telling everybody that. I was saying, shalom, y'all. They're like, yeah, you're from the USA, that's for sure. So... Great being back. I've been been in Israel a while. I I woke up this morning at 3:30 in the morning. I still got a little jet lag, um, but it's nothing that the Holy Spirit and a little Red Bull can't fix. So we're good. Uh, I'm happy to be here this morning. Uh, My heart is so full of joy about just being able to be walking in the places where the Bible uh, talks about. I've studied the Bible for 20 years or so as a new believer and. Um, I think it does create an incredible, like, 3D experience, and so a lot of fun. Um, Some of you uh, in the first service, they asked you some common questions, like, what was it like in the Dead Sea? We went to the Dead Sea. And uh, it's the Dead Sea was crazy cool. So if you come with me, I'm going to be leading a trip this next year. We'll go swim in the Dead Sea. It's the Deadest Sea in the world, is what it is. And uh, it's ten times saltier than any uh, ocean in the world. Uh, it's the lowest point in Earth. And literally, you walk out into it, and you're floating. Um, The Dead Sea was a place where Herod uh, would use, uh, King Herod would use as a place for the the uniqueness of the minerals. And uh, it was just a really cool experience. Uh, Somebody else asked me, like, did you feel safe over there in Israel? I mean, right before we went, I don't know if you saw on the news, like, Lebanon was shooting missiles up and there was all that going on. And uh, my wife's like, do you feel good about it? I'm like, you know, yeah, I feel good about it. I'm just going to go, you know. So uh, we went. Uh, Everywhere you go, people uh, do have guns. And so I I felt real comfortable around guns, so I was good. Um, Got pictures, if you followed my Instagram, I got pictures with the Israeli soldiers. It's very normal. Um, If you're an Israeli, when you graduate, you spend uh, two years in the military. So a lot of young people um, are trained in the military over there. Um, This is, Jerusalem and the Holy Land is a place for the nations to come. And I was overwhelmed with the people Of the world coming to this place and exploring faith. I I really believe if you were an atheist and you visited Jerusalem, meaning there is no God, you perhaps would take that step and become an agnostic and say, there is a God. I just don't know who maybe he is. Um, And then if you're an agnostic, I think you have to become a believer. And if you're a believer, you become a far more committed disciple of Jesus Christ. And so... It was really, really amazing trip this morning. What I want to do is I'm going to highlight to you just five locations. We toured the whole country of Israel, and that sounds like massive, but uh, Israel is like the size of New Jersey, so it's not that big. If you've ever been to New Jersey, raise your hand. Okay, not that big, right? So um, we toured the whole thing. Uh, the exact trip that I took Um, I'm going to take you guys, if you want to go with me in 2024. In the next few weeks, I'll announce the dates in which we're going to do it. And it's a life-changing trip. I think you, and I would love to spend, you know, uh, 10 days with 20 to 30 people from North Valley. That would be an incredible experience. So um, be ready for that. But we toured the whole country. I was with 25 other pastors, Um, from around the country. I was with a group called the Accelerate Group. Um, Some of you guys know a fellow by the name of Don Wilson. Uh, He led the trip, and it was an incredible experience uh, for me to spend time with these other pastors from around the country. The whole trip, it was not a vacation. It was an education. If you go to Israel with me, this is not a vacation. It is an absolute education. You are overwhelmed, over-inundated with information and experience But it's life-changing. So we were up every morning on the bus by 8 o'clock in the morning, tour all day. Uh, You have to be in pretty good shape if you want to go, at least enough shape to, like, hike two miles a day. Um, You're in the sun. you got to hydrate a lot. You're moving along. I wouldn't want to take a group of 50 or more just because knowing me, I would leave one of you on accident, okay? I'm the guy who loses my kids at Walmart, you know? And then, and then I call them on the intercom, and they're like, Dad, don't do that. Uh, so if you got lost in Israel, we just call on the intercom. If they had Walmart over there, we definitely would do that. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Had an incredible experience. And this morning, I want to just uh, highlight to you some locations. This isn't a normal preaching service for me. Um, this is a, kind of a highlights of the Holy Land and I pray that it would encourage you to say, if you don't go like this next year, you come with me on another time. Because I'm going to do this the rest of my life, Lord willing, until Jesus returns. Because I think it'll, it'll help you enjoy the Bible more and dig deeper into your faith and say, oh my goodness, this is so, so true. And uh, I think it'll increase your fervor for evangelism to share with other people about the authenticity and the historical evidence of, of Christianity it's just overwhelming. Um, so anyway, let me pray for us and then we're going to jump into God's word and we're going to explore the Holy Land, okay? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much right now. Thank you for the uh, the truthfulness of scripture. Thank you for your, your promise to restore, redeem. Thank you for your work among the nations, Lord. As I was there in Israel and saw all sorts of different tribes, tongues, and nations coming together to explore these the Holy Land. Father, I, I just pray, Father, that many of those people, thousands of people that I saw would go back into their places and spaces and surrender under you. And then the name of Jesus might be exalted. And even here in North Valley today, increase our, our desire and ambition for you, for a hunger and thirst for truth. Uh, help us, Father, to be more bold and confident in our faith. Uh, encourage us, lift us up. Uh, We invite you, Holy Spirit, for your help and the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Okay, so here's where we're at. Uh, Number one, five locations, five lessons. Uh, We visited Caesarea. And again, I visited tons of different places. I'm just going to highlight five that had meaningful messages to me when I was in these places. Um, Caesarea... um, this is, the, this is ground zero for Christianity. This is where the church becomes a movement uh, because you perhaps remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when the Lord told uh, the disciples, but wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You got it. And so the church begins to move beyond just being a bunch of Jewish people. If you remember in the scriptures that kind of like a lot of Jewish people came to faith in Jesus Christ and then there was like, hey, it's about us, the Jewish people. And then God said, no, it's beyond you as ethnically Jew. It's for Gentiles. So how many of you are ethnically Jewish? Raise your hand. One. Okay. How many of you, the rest of you, guess what you are? You're Gentiles. So, the, so this is a, the, the Christian message. Your roots, historical roots, are literally in Caesarea if God didn't break forth with the apostle Peter and tell him like, hey, dude, wake up. It's far beyond the Jewish people. It's absolutely the Jewish people, but the Gentiles too are a part of the good news of Jesus Christ, Um, we would be missing it. And so Caesarea is that location. You can see on the screen like these amphitheaters. This Herod the Great, this is, was his kind of location in which he built a palace, which by the way, he built 15 palaces around Israel. This guy's is a genius. If you want to watch like the History Channel or something like that, Prime, I'm like, watching everything now and, and learning. But this would be an amphitheater. They did, they did every five years, they would gather these huge sports competitions. They'd put the gladiators in, modern day UFC to fight to the death though. And they would do this every five years and you're able to walk around some of these places and spaces. Pilot, Pontius Pilate, that guy, um, he, he lived here. Uh, you, you, there was in, found inscriptions of this. And so this is a location... It's called uh, Caesarea Maritima, and it means uh, C, uh, Caesar by the sea. Everybody was named in cities and locations based on Caesar Augustus. And so this is a, a credible location that you could visit. But the significance for me is that the apostle Peter... Um, He is uh, given a vision that the gospel message is far beyond just the ethnically Jewish people, but it's for all people. And he is uh, summoned by some soldiers to come to Caesarea and to talk to a guy by the name of Cornelius, who is an Italian regiment uh, military leader in command of 100 people. And it's there in Caesarea that the gospel message moves into, like, turns into a movement. And uh, so let's look at the scripture, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout uh, man who feared God and all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Um, So this guy, Cornelius, he he, uh, summons uh, the apostle Peter. He's told by the Lord, like, hey, you need some help, go get Peter. Peter's being prepped by the Lord. Uh, Peter comes to Caesarea, and then Peter comes, and he goes to Cornelius' house, which is really cool, the Scripture tells us. He goes to his house, and guess what Cornelius has? He has all his family and his friends packed into the house. This would have been a wealthy guy with a lot of different friends and family, very affluent, and he's got everybody packed in there, and Peter comes, and he just starts preaching. And Peter is ethnically Jewish, and now he's preaching that the gospel message of Jesus Christ is far beyond the Jewish people. It's for all nations, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And it's at Caesarea that this message begins to turn into a movement. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 35. So Peter opened up his mouth and he started preaching. He says, truly, I understand. He didn't understand before that God shows no partiality there's no division between Jews and Greeks anymore. It's all about one faith and one in Christ. And he says, but even every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Uh, Caesarea, Maritima is your ground zero in the Christian faith. That's where it all began. You could trace your spiritual roots back there. Somehow, way, your spiritual roots are back there. The Caesarea, Maritima. Um, what does that mean for you and me? It means for you and me that I think we need to remember that Christianity is a movement among all people. Uh, Christianity, if we're not careful, can become a museum, a special place where we go and we just go ourselves. We don't invite other people. We just keep it for ourselves. It's for the, uh, the church isn't simply for the Christians. The church is to be a movement of people to share and show the love of Christ beyond the Christians. And what can happen in your faith sometimes is what you do is you get so jacked up on the Bible, which I'm, I'm thoroughly Bible. If you cut me, I bleed Bible. Um, but what can happen in times is that you get so hyped up on the scriptures and the truth that you you kind of lose your fervor and love for the work of God, that he wants all people to be saved. And what can happen, and my concern is, is that the church, if you look back at the history of it, it, when it moved through Rome and then it moved to Athens, it turned into a philosophy, like a philosophy. And then as the church has advanced into America, like the church has turned into like a corporation. Or if you look back at Europe, the church turned into a dead institution. And so if you visit churches in Europe, what do you see? Big buildings no people. The church is a movement that we surrender to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, who do you want me to speak to? I want to share and show the love of Jesus Christ to anybody that comes in my my path. And Peter got that. Um, Now, he struggled. And later, the apostle Paul says he starts confronting Peter. and He's like, what are you doing, you bonehead? You're totally acting contradictory like a hypocrite. The gospel message is for all people. The gospel message is for you. The gospel message is for your neighbor. The gospel message is for your coworkers. And my concern is as a church is we'd forget it's about a movement. It's like you and me are the vessel. You and me are supposed to be the light of the world to everybody else around us. You have an incredible responsibility. You have a great identity and you have a great purpose. So here's some questions I'm gonna ask our community group to answer, but you could answer them yourselves. How are you doing in the area of relational evangelism? How are you doing in relational evangelism? This is the question of like, how do you do in hanging out with people that are far from God? Do you even care? Relational evangelism is just building a relationship in hopes to share and show the love of Jesus Christ. And even if they don't receive the gospel message in time, and it could take years, you still are their friend. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have friends that are not believers at all? I said, you didn't have to raise your hands, but that's cool. (laughs) I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I think the older you get as a Christian, the less Christian friends you have. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the less unchurched friends you have. Because we can hang with our tribe. We just want to be with our tribe. This happens in faith. This happens in politics. You just want to be with your tribe only. But Jesus has called you to be a light in darkness. So here's another question. Rate yourself on one to 10 of your care for the lost people. Rate yourself one to 10. Do you really care that people apart from knowing Jesus Christ will go to hell? Do you really care about lost people? Do you really care? The Bible tells us that Jesus stood up over Jerusalem and he was weeping for the, for the people in Jerusalem. Like, do you care? So if you don't care, You know, one being you don't care at all, ten meaning you care a lot. If you don't care, if you're like five or lower, then you should pray, God, give me a heart like your heart. Give me eyes to see like you see. Give me a care and concern. And then I just challenge you start praying each day to bring, that God would bring somebody along into your life and that you could share and show the love of Jesus Christ with. Moving forward as a church, my prayer is that, you know, we want to open up a Thursday night service and. Man, we can't do that. That whole thing's going to fail if you guys don't be sharing and showing the love of Jesus to your friends. That idea of a Thursday night service is the idea that we're reaching people that aren't here on the weekends or they're gone or they just love to recreate or they're working or whatever. Um, But we want to move forward in 2023. Um, I'm also praying and asking the Lord, maybe we could open up a a way. There's three acres up front. Maybe there's a way we could open that up and make a food truck park so people in this area could come in and have food, and it would be right off the freeway, and we could utilize that space and place for people that are far from God. They could just come onto our campus, Lord willing, five days a week, and we could build relationships and share and show the love of Jesus Christ with people. I want to ask you to start praying more about how can we as a church be more of a movement in the North Valley, not just a museum, not where the cool, classy Christians come to worship on Sundays, but we're a movement of people. Number two, I found some bad news in Beth Shan. That sounds so sophisticated, Beth Shan. Uh, number two, bad news in Beth Shan. I visited this location. This was at a really cool location as well. Uh, Beth Shan is located about five miles northeast of Mount Gilboa, where the Jezreel Valley meets the Jordan. It was a place in which the Canaanites um, had possession of it. Right now, when you're looking at videos of it, it just looks like a place of rubble, and that's because it is. But it was, a, it was a pretty significant city. If you go with me to Israel, you can walk through there. And there was amphitheaters, there was streets and stores and all these wonderful facilities. Um, the Canaanites, these pagan idolatrous people, uh, had possession of that. And the Bible tells us that back with King Saul, he's the first king of the nation of Israel. He basically wanted possession of this land. And, but guess who else did? The Bible tells us the Philistines did. You guys remember the Philistines? Philistines is the the big guy named Gah. Let's try that again. He's the big guy named Gah. Yeah. There you go. Somebody's, the kids got it. Boom. Um, they wanted possession of it too. And so what the scripture tells us about this place called Beth Shan, I hiked up on top of the mountain and I was looking out and I could see Mount Gilboa and I could see all this stuff. But here's what the scripture says. Let's look at it. 1 Samuel thirty one ten. historical location named. Uh, they put his armor in the temple of Astarith and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now I'm reading that completely out of context, but let me tell you about this. So um, what they're talking about is this is King Saul. Uh, King Saul uh, was killed in battle along with his three boys on Mount Gilboa, which I was standing at the top of Beth-shan looking and seeing this. And the storyline goes is that King Saul wanted to take Beth-shan, um, and he takes a bunch of shortcuts and disobeys the Lord. And, and really, you know, God's word comes to him and basically says, you're going to die tomorrow. And He does. He and his three boys. I've got one boy, uh, and he battles with me in the Christian life. He's a great young man, and I couldn't imagine King Saul losing all three of his sons on Mount Gilboa, just as the Scripture had said. But what made it worse is the Philistines come back in, they cut off King Saul's head, they take his boys, and then they strap the bodies to Beth-shan. So that would have been a public sign of humiliation and defeat And the people of Israel are searching for the body of King Saul, and they find rumor that it is in Beth-shan, that his body is strapped to the wall of Beth-shan and his boys. And this is the very location in which I visited. What is the lesson here? I think the lesson is is that disobedience leads to destruction. What did King Saul do? He actually uh, consulted with a medium, like a witchcraft. And he just wanted to take a shortcut because he was afraid that he wasn't going to win the battle that God had called him to. And so he consults with a witch, a witch of Endor, as the scripture tells us. And then he takes all other sorts of shortcuts. And I think the lesson is for you and me is shortcuts never pay off. You want to shortcut something in your life, it, it always, disobedience always leads to destruction. Number three, here's another uh, location I visited. It's called uh, Khorazin and I called it the curse of Chorazin. I visited this little town called Chorazin. It's just north of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus spent most of his life doing miracles, uh, doing a lot of uh, recruiting his disciples. And, but he gives this curse. Let me show you in Scripture uh, this curse, Matthew eleven twenty 20 through 21. Uh, then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Uh, Jesus was going around. He was preaching and teaching. He was performing miracles. He was doing all this. But there was entire areas and spaces, and this is like an old synagogue, believers that were waiting for the Messiah. Jesus shows up. He does miracles, and yet they still reject him. They still turn their back on him, and Jesus says, it's, it's going to be worse for you because you've seen me do all these miracles. You've seen me work around here, and yet you're rejecting me. I think there's a message for us, and specifically, I think this is for me, I took it as a warning to the church in America, that the church of America will become just nothing but a pile of rocks like Chorazin. If the church in America turns their back on Jesus Christ, abandons the authority of Scripture, which is happening, and chooses their own way in rejection of Jesus. Uh, Nothing but a pile of rocks. Rejecting the Messiah. Failing to repent. Uh, We did a a day of prayer, and honestly, not a lot of you guys showed up. I wish you did. Um, It's okay. Uh, I've probably failed you as a pastor to lead you in more prayer. Um, but we did a national day of prayer and we were uh, asking us to humble ourselves before the Lord. The Bible tells us to humble yourself. I pray that all of us would grow in more humility. Um, but pride is a very dangerous thing. And this is what happened to the folks in Beth, in Khorazin. Uh, they got incredibly prideful. They rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. And as a result, the, the later... What ends up happening is another massive earthquake hits and just levels the place. And so as I stood there in the rubble and the ruin, it kind of reminded me of this is the result of basically when the church or when believers turn their back on God, it's only a matter of time. Right now in American uh, Christianity, there's a, uh, I would say it's a great shakeout after COVID. And what's happening in all throughout America right now is there is a massive, significant decline of church attendance, specifically within the mainline denominations. Why is that? That's because most of the mainline denominations are abandoning the truth. They're abandoning the authority of Scripture. They're turning their backs on that. And I think what's happening is a lot of those believers that, that matters to them, they're saying, forget this. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to go somewhere where they're teaching the Bible. I'm going to go somewhere where Jesus is exalted as Lord and we're told we should submit. And so this is the curse of Khorazin, a warning, I think, for us in American churches is a a warning. Well, on a more positive note, uh, number four, the fourth location I want to share with you today is about Elijah and Mount Carmel. Um, How many of you are familiar with the story of Elijah a little bit? Would you raise your hand? Um, I forgot a lot of this stuff, and so it was good for me to go back. I mean, Elijah, let me tell you about him. He was a ninth-century prophet of northern Israel. Um, He served God under King Ahab, which he was a wicked king in the nation of Israel. Uh, He's most known for his opposition to Baal. it's the story where um, all these false prophets um, are working and uh, they're summoned to go to Mount Carmel and God uses Elijah to defeat all the false prophets of Baal. Um, Baal is also the, the God in which I told you that many people worshiped back then. Um, I told you in the series I did called distressed, but blessed is that God is, uh, much like the God of prosperity today that you worship money as your master rather than the Messiah. And so, um, there was these false prophets, and Ahab the king summons them. Let's look at it, 1 Kings 18, 20. Uh, Ahab summons them, sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mark, Mount Carmel. You can go to Mount Carmel today, and you can walk on the mountain exactly where I did. When I was there, there was people from Asia, South America, um, all different parts of the earth uh, in, that were there visiting this holy site. Uh, It's a very significant site, but what's unique to me in looking at this storyline of Elijah is that he's incredibly successful and does exactly what God wants him to do, and despite his success, he falls in and gets depressed. It's very interesting. After his uh, great victory on Mount Carmel, the scripture tells us, 1 Kings 19.4, that he asked that he might die, saying it is enough now O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Uh, Elijah is suicidal. Elijah is absolutely discouraged. And, and it's very interesting to me, I think this is a lesson for leaders, is that if you're uh, leading with significance and you're uh, experiencing some victory, I think your greatest temptation isn't necessarily in your tragedy or in your sorrow or in your struggle I think your greatest temptation could come after a great victory because I think you can become incredibly prideful and then you're tempted to do something that is dishonoring to God. And this is the story of Elijah and his greatest success right after it. He falls into a place of despondency where he's literally depressed. And so what is the lesson for you and I? I think the lesson for you and I is if you're experiencing a lot of success in life, Here's a message for you, that God cares about your physical needs, because the Scripture says when Elijah was depressed off that mountain, Mount Carmel, that physical needs matter to God. First Kings uh, nine, nineteen five through 8 tells us that God would send an angel to minister to him, to provide him food, uh, to provide him water, and minister to his physical needs. If you've ever been depressed, if you've ever been really, really discouraged where you're not your normal self, um, and you go visit a counselor, do you know what the counselor will usually say to you right off the bat? Are you um, sleeping at night? Are you exercising at all? Are you, what, are you, what are you eating? <laughs> are you taking care of yourself? Um, lesson to leaders is that physical needs matter to God. You need to know that your life matters. You should be taking care of yourself so that you can honor God and be your best. It's hard to be your best, and it's hard to navigate through hardships if you're ignoring your, your body. So physical needs matter to God. Elijah, at his greatest success, falls into the depression, and an angel of the Lord shows up to him and cares for him. That highlights to me, and it should do to you, is the grace of God. God wants you to take care of yourself so that you can be a blessing to other people and that you can enjoy uh, the life he's called you to. Number two, I think the lesson here is learned, is that we need a word from the Lord. God ministers to his physical needs, but if you read First Kings 19, 9 through 12, we read that the Lord encouraged him with a low, quiet whisper. He wasn't in the wind, wasn't in the thunder or the loudness, a lightning bolt didn't appear, some big cloud, but a low, quiet whisper. Um, you need, as a believer, you need some, a word from the Lord. Um, how do you find a word from the Lord? You get into God's word. You saturate yourself with scripture and truth. And I don't think it's a bad idea to ask the Lord from time to time, Lord, what would you want me to do here today? And just be quiet and wait for the Lord. This morning I woke up, like I said, at 3.30 in the morning. I'm tired. And I'm like, Lord, what do you have for me today? Literally, this is what I'm saying early, early in the morning on my bed. And he said, I'm going to give you joy, I'm going to give you courage, and I'm going to give you strength. So after that, I said, well, I'm good to go. If I got joy coming my way, if I got courage and I got strength, I'm taken care of. So my wife always asked me, how'd you sleep? And I said, well, good enough. (laughs) Good enough. Um, My encouragement to you as a believer and seeing the story of Elijah is that You need to long for that word of the Lord. And what healed Elijah is not only his physical needs were met, but he had a word from the Lord. When I was in Israel, there was probably only two or three times there was a very powerful moment for me that it was a deep connection. And I told you I hoped that Israel would bring me closer to God. And it's not the the places and the spaces that do it. It's the entire experience of knowing that you're walking into the very places that our Lord walked. And you're opening yourself up to say, I want more of you, Jesus, in my life. Um, I want to believe greater in the scriptures and the authority of scripture. Um, But you need a word from the Lord from time to time to help you get through whatever you're going through. Number three, I thought was really cool with the story of Elijah is that we need to invest into other people. That's exactly what he did. As soon as he leaves from there, he gets the motivation and encouragement to go find a a young man by the name of uh, Elisha. Elisha, not Elijah, and he invests into him. I think sometimes when we're discouraged and in and a funk, we can so easily just turn to ourselves and not turn out. But God wants to use you, even in your hardship, to be a blessing to other people. The scripture tells us that he comforts us, gives us comfort so that we can be a comfort to somebody else. And as I looked about, as when, I, when I thought about This isn't in Scripture, but I want to tell you. uh, It was really encouraging to me. When I looked at the Sea of Galilee, by the way, the Sea of Galilee is fed by the Jordan River, and it's this beautiful sea. It's where Jesus hung out all the time, did all his miracles, fed the multitudes, and, and recruited his disciples, where he steeled the storm and he walked on water. I mean, it's awesome, the Sea of Galilee, filled with fish and life. Jordan River is just flowing through the Sea of Galilee, and on the back end of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River keeps going. It's like a really a lake is what it is, the Sea of Galilee. But the same river, the Jordan River, flows into the Dead Sea. It flows into it. But there is no outlet for the Dead Sea. It's just a big reservoir, and it's dead. There's nothing alive in the Dead Sea. It's the deadest thing in the world. There's no life. What's the analogy? The the analogy to me is, is, again, it's like if we as believers... Dam up the goodness of God, then we become nothing but a reservoir, a dead end, and like a dead sea. We've got to let God's blessings flow in us and through us. Amen. So Elijah does that. He invests in the life of other people. Number five, a really crazy cool location, which would probably be your highlight as it was my highlight in many ways. But again, God will hit you in different ways. I mean, um, it's a really, really cool experience, but we went to Golgotha, and uh, the garden tomb. This would be the location in which Jesus Christ was crucified. Uh, this would be the location in which Jesus Christ uh, was buried. And you can go and visit some of these places. Um, there's controversy. Uh, the Catholic Church and Orthodox Church, they've uh, erected some, uh, the church uh, called the Holy Sepulcher. It's an actual site where they believe Jesus was buried in Jerusalem. Man, I went in there, and it, I, I'm not saying it, it did did not happen there, but it, it felt we, really strange to me. It was like um, it was so commercialized, so crowded, and uh, I don't know. It could have, and, and really, the, the the at the end of the day, uh, there's there's a couple of arguments on where they believe uh, Jesus was crucified and where he was buried, and for me, I personally believe that he was most likely buried. Uh, over in what's called the garden tomb. And so let me jump into a couple of passages of scripture and I'll explain some more. John nineteen seventeen 17 says, so they took Jesus um, and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. And so I think I've got a couple of pictures. I'll show you um, the site in which we visited, this is a location um, which we visited, and you can see it does look like a skull, doesn't it? Um, and this is a modern day picture kind of put over it, which is you go through that, you're like, man, that, that looks pretty close. And what's crazy cool about being in Israel is like, literally, the geography hasn't changed that much. Like, the Sea of Galilee is the Sea of Galilee, you know? Like, the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea. Like, it's there. You're in the place. So whether it's actually this place where Jesus was crucified or it's not, this is as close to me as it gets. Uh, it was a very powerful concept to understand too that our Lord would be crucified there. And then this would be the empty tomb. And um, it's called the garden tomb. And so I'll show you a passage of scripture, John 19, 4, uh, 41, about this garden tomb. Now, in the place where he was crucified, so Golgotha and the garden tomb are very close beside each other. So, it would be very possible for somebody to um, take the, the body of our Lord Jesus off of the cross and literally hike across a little ways and find this tomb. And they found this. So, this tomb that I just showed you is very, very close to Golgotha. Um, John nineteen forty one. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and, the, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Um, the tomb that I showed you in the, in the pictures is a very, very nice tomb. It's not like dressed up uh, over the years. It is literally, let me see if I can show you some pictures. You can walk inside there. This tomb is big enough where um, some of the apostles could go in. Peter and John could literally go in. And the scriptures tells us that, you know, um, there was like a foot race to get to the tomb, and then an angel of the Lord showed up, and they've, they've got a fence there, but Jesus would have been laid right there. I mean, it was overwhelming to think about this as a believer in Christ, that this could be the very place. Um, what did it do? It didn't, like, it's not like the rocks gave me energy. It's not like the tomb gave me energy. What gave me energy and excitement was the, the validity of the Christian storyline, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he walked our earth, that God became one of us, among us, that he lived and he died, and he is who he says he is. The story goes on. It says in John nineteen thirty-eight through 40, here's the lesson I got out of this is No More Secret Disciples. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Verse 39, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, and they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." When they decided to go talk to Pilate about taking the body of our Lord Jesus, there's no more secrets. They got to go completely public. Um, For them to do this means that they would be kicked out of the Jewish uh, community. For them to do this means their business is now signed up for death and destruction. To do this means their family is going to be persecuted. They don't have the friends they used to have. To do this means that they've got a mark on their head in a sense like they're a target. No more secret disciples. Nicodemus was a secret disciple for a while. Remember, he had Jesus over in the the night and wanted to ask a lot of questions. Jesus wasn't angry and mean to him. Jesus invited him in, said, ask your questions. Joseph of Arimathea too, he was a secret disciple for a long time. No more secret disciples. They took the body of our Lord Jesus Christ beaten and bloodied and they washed him and cleaned him. They wrapped him and then they put him in that tomb and they knew full and well, this is what this means. No turning back. And as a Christian, you have to understand, if you choose to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to go through hardship. If you choose to follow Jesus Christ, it might mean that you you, uh, are not going to have the the friends that you used to have. As As a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not called to be a secret disciple. But a public disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. This is why baptism is so important. And today after service, we're baptizing a number of folks. It's the moment in which you say, I am following Jesus Christ and I want people to know. Amen. And so the problem today is, is so many want to, people want to keep their faith private, but th- there's nothing private about being a Christian. Jesus says, you're a light to the whole world, not just to a couple of friends. But you have that responsibility. So no more secret disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray, Father, for my friends here today that one of these lessons would land hard on their hearts, one of them, and they might turn towards you and be filled up with greater courage and joy and strength, Father, for those that do not know you and perhaps are convinced by the evidence of just the historical locations might turn towards you, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior even today and be baptized. No more secret disciples. So, Father, raise up in us a greater faith and courage to live for you. In the mighty name of Jesus, everybody said amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.